All right, good morning to the camera in front of me and the eyes that are behind it. I uh, hope life's been good to you. We are working through Colossians, as you know. Uh, grab your Bible, go there. As always, um, just want to remind you that this is not church. This is We are Salt River Community Church, but this is not church. This is uh, me unpacking the word for church tonight. So we'll gather tonight to talk through and wrestle with what the word has had to say and to pray. Uh, and so I would invite you to join us. You're welcome to come. We'd love for you to if you want to. Hit us up online. Shout at us on social media. You could send an email, a uh, message, whatever you want to do. And we'll tell you exactly where we are. We're in Tempe, Arizona. And uh, so if you're in the East Valley especially, that'd be awesome. But um, I don't care where you're coming from. You can jump a plane and come worship with us if you want. Uh, but anyway, we are in Colossians. So if you've got a Bible, flip over there. I remind you each week, I will continue to do so as we're moving through this thread of knowing who you are. Uh, Colossians 3.3 3 is our verse. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we're progressively seeing that illustrated. That's why I keep reading it. So today you're going to see it illustrated even better, even though we're in chapter 2. So, keynote, we're in chapter 2. Go there. Chapter 2... Verse 8, I'm going to read it, uh, and then we'll jump back into it. So, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also... You were circumcised with the circumcision, circumcision made without human hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Man, that's a mouthful. We could spend uh, quite a bit of time on each individual verse, but we're actually going to push through this today. So let me pray for us. Lord, I love you. I thank you, as always, for your word. It is so awesome, so amazing, so incredible, Lord. It's your word, not mine. And uh, I thank you for so much truth in it that even though we can kind of tackle this in a short 30, 40 minutes, Lord, there's so much more. And I look forward to tonight and being able to discuss that more with our group. And uh, I encourage others who may be watching this or hearing it that they would spend time throughout the week thinking on so many truths that are um, expressed here by Paul in your word. We love you, God. We thank you for that, and we pray you're glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I remember a day that will always stand out in my mind. I'll never forget it. My life was changed dramatically by it. I was in discipleship with Robbie Gallaty at the time um, back at Brainerd, and Brainerd Baptist in Chattanooga, and uh, we'd been together for maybe a year, year and a half, something. I don't, I don't know how long it was, maybe less than that, but in any event, for a while, and We'd gotten into this discussion of grace, and we'd been talking about grace and talking about it, and 
uh, you know, my mind is sitting on the old definition of grace in mercy. You know, mercy's uh, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Those things were sitting in my head as we're going through all this. And But uh, there was a time in the midst of all that, I'll never forget it. I was sitting in my chair by the fireplace in our home in Tennessee, and I was reading through my Bible, and I came across Ephesians 2 again. I'd read it, but for whatever reason, reading it and looking at it, the, the phrase dead hit me in the face, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I started to feel the weight of what it means to be dead. Like, I mean, dead. Dead things do nothing but rot. And even rot is an effect on them. It's not even something they're technically doing. They do nothing. Dead things do nothing. And I began to feel the weight of like Romans 9 and John 6 and some of those phrases that are so rough. Romans 8 that we tend to get worked up about and think, man... He, he just loves me. Like Jesus just chose me because he chose me. He just loves me. It's nothing in me literally at all because I was dead that drew his attention. Not even me choosing him drew his attention to me. And I'm going to tell you something, man. I, I, I nearly went into a panic. Like it, it smashed me. I mean, I, I remember actually starting to hyperventilate a little bit. Because this image of God that I had was starting to become different. Not that he was different. I was just starting to understand him differently. And it was almost for a second like everything was about to change. And it was. And I remember going from near panic attack to absolute joy. Uh, absolute joy as this picture got clearer and clearer and clearer. And I burst into tears like tears of joy, you know. And, and and inexpressible feelings. I don't even know how to describe what I felt in that moment. So much so, as I said, it changed my life forever, and it'll be a time I never, ever forget. And now this is how I define grace. Why me? I've had the pleasure of doing ministry in prisons and, and all sorts of places, and that's one thing I always try to communicate. Grace, the definition of grace is why me? Uh, and we're going to unpack that today as we look at the truth about grace here. Uh, Paul's explaining to the Colossians what we just read, that their their faith is not in these spiritual forces that the Gnostics talked about. They're not in traditions of the Jews. They're not in words of like so-called wisdom and whatnot. But they're in the one God who is Jesus Christ. And that their salvation is a result of his victory over all all right, and his complete work in their redemption. That's what Paul's trying to get in front of them. So when, when, when we say that we're saved by grace, when we say that we're saved by grace, we want people to know that means our salvation, our identity, our new identity is a result of the completed work of Jesus Christ alone. You understand what I'm saying? That our grace, or sorry, that when we say we're saved by grace, we want people to know that that new identity, that salvation, is by the completed work of Jesus alone. So we're going to look at that in two areas, because of who he is and because of what he does. All right, the truth about grace is because of who he is, our salvation is because of who he is and because of what he does. And his like eternal reign, his eternal rule over all of creation is what secures his eternal grace for us. You hear me? His eternal rule and reign 
is what secures his eternal grace for us. Okay, so first of all, because of who he is. Look at Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. Uh, some translations don't use the word spirits. Some put in their principles, elemental principles. Some just say elements of this world. The only w- Greek word there is elemental or elements. That's it. That, so, so they're just trying to kind of add to it a little, not adding to his word, just sorting through the thought. So according to the elemental, I'm going to stick with spirits, because that's what ESV says here, the world, and not according to Christ. So let's pull those apart quickly. Philosophy first, he says. In, in his simplest term, philosophy is not wrong. He's not saying that. This is the only time this Greek word philosophy is used in the New Testament. And what Paul is talking about is man's attempt to determine the meaning of everything with his own reasoning and wisdom and words, uh, you know, or as one put it, it's the effect of the human mind to solve the mystery of the universe. That's what Paul's talking about here. And there's so many great philosophers in history that have come and gone, and, and one after another, they've corrected the previous one's thinking. One after another, they corrected the previous, or they've completely dismissed it in light of the world's changing circumstances. One of the two. And many great philosophers, you can go back and look at their writings, they longed for a message, a divine message, a, 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 a word, they would say, a word that would, would answer all of life's questions. And they wrestled and they reasoned and they debated and they talked and they built on each other's talk in order to try to come up with that word or to have that divine word from somewhere. John wrote, in the New Testament, that Jesus is that word. That's the way he started his entire gospel. He is the word in John 1.1. 1, 1. Philosophy typically falls into one of two camps on their outlook on life. Not, I'm not trying to be a philosopher. I'm just saying typically they fall into one of two camps. One is leave life or live life to the fullest because tomorrow you die. So go after it, man. Just you know, do everything you can do, ride a bull named Fu Manchu, you know, all that stuff. Live it to the fullest because you die. Uh, the other side is release yourself of everything, purge all things. Uh, don't seek to do everything. Don't seek to do nothing. Be in the middle somewhere. Don't cling to things, but don't let go of things. Be even. That would ultimately uh, become a belief system that is known as nirvana or buddhism that leads to nirvana things like that uh but neither of those philosophies solve the why or the purpose what's the purpose of all of this what's the why behind all they only attempt to explain a way to feel satisfied with existing rather than explain why or what the purpose is jesus said that in him was life and life more abundantly and eternal. Jesus is the answer to that. Paul re- references that word elemental or, or simple. He's almost in a sense mocking the word philosophy here. Rather than lofty, high, deep thoughts and discussions, he's saying these elemental things, they're, they're only the ba- they're only elemental. They're only basic things. They're the bottom, the best reasoning you can come up with is really the bottom of the barrel. It's just a scratch on the surface of a God who created everything. 
As 1 Timothy 6.20 says, Paul wrote to Timothy here, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Sounds real smart. He says, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul would say to Timothy and others, push on to maturity. Leave behind elemental, elementary things. Leave it behind. Press on to maturity in Christ. Uh, Ironside wrote, as uh, he, he said, Christianity owes no debt to Greek, Roman, Middle, or Modern philosophy. Um, Christianity is not shaped by any developing philosophy through any age of time. Christianity is shaped by the Word of God, and that's it. No mind or reason of man has built upon this at all, and nor will it. It is his word alone, and and it is so far beyond what we might define as elemental. It's holy. You know, it's the word of the living God. He said human tradition. Now, he's kind of taking a stab here uh, at the Jewish leaders in a lot of ways, too, who had come along with the law, the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and they had built these walls around it. So, for instance, if Moses said, uh, don't eat uh, cod, they would say, don't eat fish. If Moses said, don't walk across the street, they would say, don't leave your house. So, and, and they were doing that possibly even innocently in the beginning because they were trying to prevent people from sinning and running the nation into Babylonian exile again or something like that. But over the years, up to the time of Christ and on, it had gotten to where they had all of these additional things piled onto the law, traditions that, that, that Jews were expected to keep to be faithful. Jesus addressed it in Matthew fifteen three. He said, why do you, religious leaders, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Um, and the sad thing is, even the law here was not designed to save, much less the traditions. The law itself was not designed to save. The law was only there to condemn. I'll give you some verses. You can study this a little deeper in your own time, but I'll give you some verses to back up what I'm saying. Romans 7, verse 7, Paul said, If I had, not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what he's saying is the law identified the sin, and when it identified it, I went, yeah, that's me. I did that, and now I know I am sinning against God, right? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six: the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the power in sin, meaning that sin gains its power from the fact that the law proves it to be true. Yes, I have sinned. The law says, do not covet, I've done it. Do not lust, I've done it. You know, those kind of things. Romans 3, verse 20, he says, For by the work, or by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's backing up, he's saying, you, keeping the law is not going to make you right with God because the law's purpose was to prove you aren't right with God. Meaning, you're not keeping the law, you can't keep the law. Galatians 2, verse 16, here, this is probably one of the most powerful ones. Yet we know, Paul again, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, faith, belief, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, 
No one will be justified. Do not let the law or human traditions lead you away, uh, Paul would say here. Empty deceit. He threw that one in there too. That's basically to take those things that we're talking about here, philosophy, traditions, you know, all these elemental things to take them and make bold claims about them that are just lies. For instance, they'll save you. That's just a lie. No, they won't. No, they won't. They will answer all your questions and give you everything you need to know. No, they won't. That's just an empty lie. And it's empty because when you pursue it, you gain nothing. It's like spending all your money to buy a container that's supposed to have gold in it. And when you turn it upside down, there's nothing there. Just a lie. That's what he's saying. And Paul ultimately demolishes all these philosophies and human traditions and empty deceit and elemental things. He demolishes them right here with this epic bomb that even our best attempt to reason, even as believers, our best attempt to reason fall way short. He drops this bomb that all the fullness of God dwelt in a body, human. Look at this, Colossians 2 verse 9. For in Christ, in Jesus, in him, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Man, that's just a few words, but it is a smash. Like, we've already talked about this back in chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. And you can go back and look at that. Because Paul is continuing to argue this point that Jesus is in fact God. I mean, no dancing around it. But this right here, this simple statement, is just about as blunt as you can possibly get. And he goes on, he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Jesus actually said, we've talked about it already in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's outright calling himself God. Think of it like this. God is exactly like Jesus. Now that would be super heretical, except that it were true. God is exactly like Jesus. You know, the whole fullness of God was in him. Now he throws in bodily. That's a big deal that he throws in bodily. He's trying to make a point here that he was a, all God was in a man. He was actually a man as well. He wasn't just a spirit force. He was a man. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, I'm not going to go back into these or, or look them up. I'll just walk you through them. But God gives all authority to the man he created. Adam. All the earth is under his authority. In Genesis 3, Adam surrenders his authority to Satan by trusting Satan's word and rejecting God's word. You can go back and look at it yourself. And in doing so, he submitted himself. Instead of under God, he submitted himself under Satan, who then assumes authority over the world. And we know this from multiple places, but a couple, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is called the God of this world, the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the, the atmosphere that we're in, a lot of things like that. So there, there's the situation. But Paul would call Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five, the last Adam, having succeeded in taking back what the man Adam lost. The man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, took it back as a man bodily to redeem man. He was also God, though, God the Son, having 
all the fullness of God, who is the one who was sinned against. So he becomes the man who had sinned, although he was without sin. And he's also fully God, who is the one who was sinned against. I mean, mind-blowing. But the beauty of this is that's where our salvation comes from. And Paul says that we are filled. Now, let me ask you something. It says it. You see full, filled. We are. If we are filled, what are we short of? What are we lacking? What are we missing? Full is full, right? Nothing. We're not missing anything. It, it means we are, it literally, it means we are complete or, or fully supplied. That's what it means. Fully supplied, complete. So guess what? I'm not trying to take shots, but here it is. There's no future filling of the Holy Spirit or God or anything else. You have it all at salvation. There, at least in the sense that you don't have it. Now you can, you can have, uh, you, the Holy Spirit can have more of you in terms of your faithfulness and things like that. But all, there's, the Holy Spirit is fully in you at salvation because you are filled, he said, already. It's already done. You're filled. Uh, they already had, they were already filled with all, all, all that they need, everything to include the Holy Spirit. So in him, all the fullness of God dwells, and we find our fullness in him, is what it literally says there. We're not without any amount of fullness of him. You understand that? We're not with any, without any amount of fullness of him. We, we, we have total access. We have complete Complete access to him, and we are accepted by him. Ephesians 1, 6, what a beautiful statement. Right now, right now, we're already accepted by him, fully accepted. That, that's the first beautiful picture of grace because of who he is, all of those things. But then because of what he's done, and I know there's a lot here, but we're going to slice through it pretty quick, so don't freak out. Verse 11, in him... Also, you were, notice past tense. I want you to pay attention to the tense of all these things. You were circumcised, past tense, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision, the physical act of cutting away literal flesh. That's that's what it is. And it was given as a symbol of cutting away the spiritual flesh from our hearts. That's kind of the picture. And so why would God choose that body part? Now, I'm not trying to go into all this and get vulgar, but why would God choose that particular body part? Well, perhaps it's because that's where life is transferred or given, where reproduction, human reproduction stems from. Uh, perhaps it's also because that's an area that's most frequently, uh, most frequently leads to sin. Self-satisfaction, carnality, basically physical satisfaction at the cost of spiritual loss most frequently occurs probably, I would say, in that area. So physical satisfaction at the cost of spiritual loss. And what circumcision is, is to bring spiritual satisfaction at the cost of physical loss. All right. Circumcision is to is to be, uh, bring spiritual satisfaction at the cost of a physical loss. And so Paul is saying that that physical act is a picture of something spiritual that now is literally happening in Christ. It's like a shadow of a person standing there. And we've been looking at the shadow and talking about the shadow and describing the shadow. But now we look enough and we can see the person. The person's here. 
Christ has made complete the act of purging our flesh, in a sense. Not the physical flesh, but the, the heart of, our, our fleshly heart. You know what I'm saying? That desire for worldly things, desire for self, that flesh. That is the flesh that's opposed to God. He's cut that flesh away. Away from our hearts, something no human hand could do. That's why he says no human hand. No human hand could do that because it's a spiritual thing. You know, Jeremiah 4, 4, Old Testament, looking towards this day that Christ would come. Jeremiah 4, 4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. He goes on because of your evil deeds. How are they supposed to do that? Later on, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, he says, I makes a promise that I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That's what we're talking about right here. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, he would talk about the same thing, that he'll give us a new heart. Take away our heart of stone. Give us a new heart. Uh, uh, and he says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes or my laws. So on the cross, Christ's flesh is cut off, cut away. He was killed uh, for the sins of our flesh, right? And he was set aside as worthless, just like that flesh would have been tossed aside. He himself has been tossed aside as that flesh. And just as that skin was discarded in a circumcision, he's been set aside. And his death, uh, we too die to our flesh spiritually. And in his resurrection, we too find spiritual life, a circumcised new heart in the resurrection. That's the beauty of what he's saying. So there's no attempting here to be good enough for God. There's no room for it because it's something that he's already done for us. It's already been done. That already occurred. He's already created that heart. Grace, grace, grace. He's already done it for you. He's already done it. You can't do it yourself and you can't do enough because it's already been done. Going on, verse 12. Having been... Again, the tense, past, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, it's already occurred, with him, at the same time with him, through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See what he's saying? Our faith places us in that spot with Christ. And although this would certainly apply to water baptism, Paul's talking about what that water baptism symbolizes, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit fills us as we are dying in our flesh with Christ on that cross by faith. And then our new life as he is raised to new life, we are raised to new life by the Holy Spirit that it comes within us, lives within us. And again, it's already happened as a result of our death with him and being raised with him. It's already occurred. You know, listen, speaking to my Christian brothers and sisters, listen, man. If Christ can raise the dead, if he can raise you from the dead, and he has already done it, past tense. What is there in your life that he cannot handle? What is there in your life that he cannot overcome? What is it you think is too big for him to deal with? 
Or what is it you think he doesn't care about or he's ignoring? If he raised you from the dead already. Grace, grace, grace. God's not making an effort to improve us. He's made a way for us to die. That sounds like a bad thing, but we need that because we need to be rid of this flesh. It needs to die. So he's made a way for us to die, to be rid of the flesh and the sin that causes that death in us. It's a way to be rid of it and to be raised to a new life, not an improved life, a new life. The dead now lives. Verse 13, and there he says it, and you who were what? Dead. Notice by again the tense were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him. It happened then with him. It happened at the same time. So, hey, guess what? This change in your life occurred 2,000 years ago if you belong to him. Having forgiven, past tense, us all our trespasses. That's the cause of the death in the first place is the sins. Again, some verses, I'm not going to look them up, but you know, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short, everybody. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, so everybody's fallen short, thus everyone dies, plain and simple. 1 John 5.19 says, all the world, apart from those who are in Christ, all the world is in the power of the devil. Says it outright, hopeless, but... He made us alive and he forgave all our sins. All, all, all. You see it? Grace, grace, grace. And what happened to those sins? Look what he says, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood, past tense, against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul's referring to written charges here that would have been on a parchment uh, to, to show that you had a debt, detailing the debt a person had. All right, And when they couldn't pay, they were arrested and put into prison until they did pay. And that written record stood there, perhaps even on the wall by the cell, but it stood as a evidence of their debt. So God says our debt is sin. He says it. it's sin. And the penalty is death. And there is a record of our sin. And that's the law because it details that we have, in fact, uh, gone in debt by breaking his law. But. For those who belong to Christ, look what it says. Christ has wiped them away. He's taken that and erased it completely. All the ink is gone. All of it is gone. He's made it white. The record, the record of our debt is gone. There's no more record. He didn't just say to heck with it. He paid it. He paid it. Look what it says. It was nailed to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Now, this is another reference to a sign. And you probably know this if you've seen uh, movies about the crucifixion or you've read the Bible. John 19, 19, uh, when Christ was on the cross, Pilate put a sign up above his head that called him king of the Jews. That was his crime, was being king of the Jews. Now, that wasn't just for Christ. That was typical. They would put their crime on a plaque or something up there that everybody going by that saw someone crucified would know what the crime was. So not only was our sin debt wiped clean, but what Paul is saying here is they were transferred to Jesus' cross. Not 
Not just like a little post-it note that we wrote and stuck it on there. That's not what he's talking about, ceremonially placed on some little what. That's not what he's saying. This is what he's getting at. When, when those who were passing by back in those days, when they looked and they saw that Roman cross and the law that it stood for, that appeared to be broken, that Roman cross and the law that it stood for, and on the sign above Jesus' head, they would read what Pilate wrote about him in terms of breaking the law. All right, But when God looked down on the cross of Christ, what was written upon it, upon that cross, was his law. God's law was what was written upon it. And upon Jesus' body was written the debt, the debt against us. It was written on his body. Each open wound, each drop of blood bearing record of our sin, our sin, my sin, nailed there, not by Pilate. Not by me, not by the Jews, by God. By God. Grace, grace, grace. Look at, you don't have to turn to it, Romans 10 verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law. It's finished for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen. Satan may accuse you of sin if you're a believer. Satan may accuse you of sin. And you know what? He might even be right at times. Uh, He may be right every time. But your debt has been paid in Christ. Do not listen to him. Turn from your sin because you want to be closer to Christ. But don't listen to him. Your debt has been paid. He has no authority over you. He cannot take from you The Holy Spirit, he cannot take from you Jesus. He cannot do it because Christ has paid. Um, And I love the last verse here, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When I lived in Tennessee, I was a chef at uh, a private club up on the mountain in town there. They had a Lookout Mountains in downtown Chattanooga area. So there's a uh, private club up there that I was executive chef of for a while. And some of our dishwashers uh, didn't have vehicles. They, they uh, So when they had to go home at night, they couldn't get, there was no bus that ran the mountains. So I would take them home. And they lived in some shady parts of town, to say the least. And I'll never forget one night, uh, myself and a friend, another cook there, were driving home three dishwashers and and uh, we dropped, we got to their house, and as we pulled up in front of their house, a car came flying up behind us, and it's probably midnight, it was after shift, you know, late at night, and this car came pulling up behind us as we were parked at the curb and kind of teed us into the curb, so we couldn't go anywhere. There was a car parked on the curb in front of us, so we could go nowhere, and I'm in the passenger side, the friend was driving, and before I can even blink uh, at the window, there is a pistol aimed through the window right at my head, right here. And I'm telling you, as about as scared as I've been. And there's a man standing there wearing all black, and he's screaming at me to get out of the car. And I'm like, there's not a chance I'm getting out. And But then as, as, I, as he's leaning over, his badge falls out, and it was a cop. So they thought we were there buying crack or selling crack or doing something with crack. They end up searching the car. There was nothing in there, so they let us go. But it scared the, the death out of me to have that gun in my face and somebody screaming at me. I had no idea who, who it was. Listen, sin can be scary. It can be. Just like having a gun in your face 
It can feel that way. But what God wants you to know is that in Christ, the gun has no bullets. The gun has no bullets. It's definitely still intense. Okay, but when it happens, trust him that he's taken away all the bullets by allowing them to be fired upon himself. He didn't just empty the gun. He said, I will take the bullets. Think of Satan coming before God in the book of Job. I always go back to this. All the other angels are present there. And, and God, and this is in the first two chapters, you can read it later. But God places all of their attention, all the angels, he places all of their attention on Job. And he, Satan says to God, well, you know, Job worships you because you protect him. And, and so, you know, let me do this. Let me go do this or this or this. And he'll cave, he'll turn on you. And uh, Satan's allowed by God to bring great suffering on Job with one exception, don't kill him. But you can do whatever else. And Job wrestles and he struggles. But he doesn't budge in his faith. He's still focused on God. Now, it's Christ at this point who has all of their attention. All of the angels, all of creation's attention is on Christ. Death this time is not withheld. Like with Job, death is now not withheld. And through the cross, Satan appeared to have claimed victory. Oh, but Sunday, right? Sunday he rose. His enemies are defeated in shame. Already, already, already defeated. It's already, it's already done. The accuser has nothing more to accuse God's people of. He's got nothing left. We might, you know, he might have accused Adam. Hey, God, you said, you said if he ate it, if he ate it, God, you said he'd die. He did, he did. You saw him, he did. You said, God, he's guilty. Adam's guilty. You said it. Now this last Adam looks back at Satan and says, you know what? You're right. I did say it. And now bodily, I did die. But being fully God, death has no hold over me. No hold over me. And on that Sunday morning, he took back from the adversary... What the first Adam lost, he's triumphed over all the powers of the adversary, angels, man, everything, over all. So imagine the celebration in heaven on that day as Christ walked out of the grave, man. Imagine the sense of terror and defeat as Christ arose back to his throne. What his enemies must have thought. With all of heaven shouting, the music is on ten, the horns are blaring Thunders exploding, all of the universe is in awe of one person at one moment. That is triumph. That's what he's talking about. So, this is who we are in him. He is ours and we are his. That's what he's saying. I'm going to read Ephesians 2. I've used this quite a bit, but, but it's too good not to use again. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us. Past tense. It's already happened. Raised us up with him and seated. Past tense. Seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's already there. Your spot is already there. You're, you are already there. You don't, you, you don't realize it, but it's fact. So that in the coming ages he might show or triumph the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Amen. 
Note uh, one last kind of point here that stands out to me again. Verse 10, by him. Verse 11, in him. Verse 12, with him. Twice, with him. Verse 13, with him. Tony Evans said it was like we're united with him like cream stirred into coffee. (laughs) And that whole section is bookended by God in him. Look at verse 9. All the fullness of deity in him. 15. God triumphing in him. Our salvation, our security is based on him being God and conquering all and reigning as God. You understand what I'm saying? So what, what I'm getting at here is our salvation is completely secure because he secured it. And the only way we can lose it is if he loses his reign. And that's where faith comes in. I have total faith that ain't ever going to happen. So when when you say, when we say, excuse me, that your identity is in Christ, that's what we mean. He defines you. He's the one that defines you. Not your past, not your present. Not your future, not what somebody said about you, not your parents, not your job, not your expectations, not someone else's expectations, not someone who's angry at you or disappointed in you. Only Christ defines who you are. And he is faultless. He is without sin and he is full of forgiveness. I love this quote from Darren Patrick, a book church planner. He wrote, many people think that Christianity is spelled do. They look at the Bible or the life of Christ and they simply try hard to live like Christ. Christianity is really spelled done. It is what Christ has done that enables us to live a life of obedience. Amen. So maybe you think you're not good enough for saving. Maybe you think whatever it is you've done or are doing is too much. He can't possibly come that far. We are all dead. And that's a great place to begin is realizing that you are, in fact, hopeless. You're not. Maybe you think you're not that bad and you can fix it. You're wrong. You're wrong. You cannot establish righteousness for yourself. You're not good enough. <laughs> and it can't, you can't be good enough. You are, by nature, separated from God by sin. Dead. But the beauty of the cross is that Jesus made a way. I hope today you're hearing that in what I'm saying. I hope today that you, if you don't know Christ, that you stop playing games and that you say, Christ, take my life. I want that grace. Say it however you want to say it. You can get on your knees. You can fall on your face. You can stand here and say it. It, it, There's no magic spell. You're just acknowledging that, Christ, I need you. I need your righteousness. I know in me I am only a sinner. I want life. You can have my life. You can have who I am. I will die with you, and you live through me. These things, tell him. Tell him. Come see us. Come here if you're nearby. If you're not, jump in a good, strong, Bible-centered, Bible-teaching church and learn how to be a disciple who makes disciples. If you're already a disciple, if you're already part of the church, thank God for grace every single day. Every day, thank Him. Every day. Let grace lead you to a humble servant heart that embraces Jesus Command and call to love our enemies and make disciples of all nations. Grace should push you to that.
Let me pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. As always, I said it earlier. I'll say it again. It's amazing. I love it. Lord, I thank you for grace, Lord, for saving me when I know that I am dead and that there's nothing in me to merit that salvation, but you did it. Thank you for wiping my debt clean. Thank you for nailing it to yourself on a cross. Lord, thank you for defeating death for me. And I pray for anybody here that uh, hears me or hears what I'm saying, God, that they would confess the same thing, that you would save people for your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.